Welcome to the 12th episode of the Tech Gypsies podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Kim Lane. And I am in Hermosa Beach. I'm in Dufer, Oregon. Duffer. Dufer. Duffer? Duffer. Dufer? Dufer. Um, why? What are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, right now I'm drinking coffee, doing a podcast, but uh, um, I'm traveling to some ghost towns. There are a number of ghost towns out here in eastern Oregon, so Dufer is about two and a half hours east of Portland, Oregon, if you head on the I-84 and then uh, take a little trip south. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, little little itty bitty town out in some wheat fields. And uh, I went to a an old uh, old schoolhouse and store last night in a in what used to be a town called Friend. Um, it's no more. But uh, and then I went to a graveyard last night as well. So um, and today I'm going to an old textile town and looking. For for this abandoned um, church out in Grass Valley, Oregon. So just doing some some video drone work and photos. Excellent. And I am assuming since last time we recorded a podcast that you have fully recovered physically from your 40-mile hike. Yes, I have. Um, I, I My body's already itching trying to get me to do more hikes, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the hard part... Um, with doing a bunch of physical activity, it's sort of you want to keep keep building on it. Yeah. Right on. So n- now that you're not out in the woods quite the same way, um, how are you doing uh, work-wise? Um, I'm slowly tuning back into the world. Um, I'm taking baby steps. Um, it's... Uh, I, I find it appealing. I, I, I find those old habits are there as far as going through my feeds, um, you know, doing the reading and doing the, the monitoring that I'm doing. But uh, I find I, I'm i not as concerned with, I mean, because I'm not really writing anything uh, yet. I'm still just kind of gathering my thoughts on the space, catching up on what's been going on, and just thinking about what's happening and, and kind of my role in it and what it means to me. Um, I just don't really, you know, nothing really grabs me. Nothing seems super important. There's definitely lots of topics I want to think about, but nothing that's really urgent, like in real time. I just don't feel that, 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 I don't feel compelled to write about stuff and, and be part of the active conversation like I used to. Um, maybe that'll change. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, this whole process with, um, with the, your drone recovery work um, has made me really reflect on this compulsion for real time as well. I can't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast or not, but this notion that I think that the tech sector um, really pushes, and it make it does make sense for certain professions, particularly those adjacent to the tech world, but journalists, um, weather reporters to be to pay attention in the sort of the sort of real time mode of constantly being online, constantly being updated. But I'm not sure how much it makes makes sense for all of us. And to add to that, I think that in some ways there's something about the real time, the sort of obsession with real time, that makes us have less depth 
in the analysis that we undertake, right? So we're all, you know, every day there's like a series of, you know, hundreds of new articles, tons of news updates, but we never have time to actually explore them with, um, with, with a lot of critical depth because we've all, we're all real-time demands that we're always on to the next thing, right? So we can't really talk about, for example, we can't really talk about the terrorist attacks um, in Bangladesh that occurred the day before yesterday because we've had terrorist attacks today in Iraq. We can't really talk about um, certain, you know, you know, certain developments because we've really got to already move on to the next the next real-time 24-hour news feed um, update. I, f- I feel like we're being kind of assaulted in a way on a regular basis, and it, and, it, and it weakens us, our critical faculty, so that we can't, like you said, we can't, we have to move on to the next thing. We don't have time to actually stop and think about it, but I almost feel like we become happy and kind of comfortable in that. I wouldn't say happy, but we come, become really complacent. I mean, like, Looking through my feeds, like what interests me now or what I think is relevant and important to bookmark or tag or do whatever um, is, I think, pretty different than it it would have been even four months ago. Um, You know, I mean, I look at something like bots, you know, it's like I have zero interest in in them right now. I mean, for, uh, for a lot of reasons, but the descriptions are just all exactly the same. Let let this help you. It's going to be super smart. It's going to know everything about you. It's going to know all your friends. It's going to know all this stuff about you. And that's not at all of interest to me now. Before, I, I was a little skeptical, but I was at least semi-interested. So I feel like if we don't allow ourselves to step back from time to time, we're, we're, we're just really setting ourselves up to be kind of, you know, so the, the snake oil salesman um, can really slide stuff in there that we're just like, wow, that seems really cool. That seems really interesting because I just haven't had the time to actually really think about this at all. But yeah, that seems neat. That seems interesting. That's got to be the next thing. That's got to be it. And we're just not slowing down in any way and and actually thinking about what's important and what's meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, I mean, in the past, lots of folks have used the analogy of you know, fast food versus the slow food movement, right? And I think that increasingly, you know, it does feel as though we really are interested just in sustaining ourselves intellectually with fast food, where we're less likely to sit down and, and you know, enjoy, enjoy a meal. And that's, uh, you know, at a, at a leisurely pace. And that's just not... Um, you know, that's just not sustainable. Well, and I, I mean, diving into one of the posts that you had on our list, uh, why I'm suing the government, I think I get the feeling this is about like scraping and pulling information about what's what's online and what what we need this this professors uh, uh, teaching his students how to get information that they need. And I feel like part of what's going on is is we're not even in this real-time way. We're not getting the information we need because we have to go scrape right. it and get it. We're getting the information that's being prescribed to us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's a really a, a 
a really um, important point. Um, so this is an article, and, and as usual, um, I put links to these these articles that we discuss in the show notes for the podcast. But this was posted on the Social Media Collective's research blog. It's written by Christian Sandvig, and he talks about that he's run afoul of the um, Computer F- Fraud and Abuse Act by scraping bots, those um, creating those kinds of those kinds of things, like you said, in order to um, find important information and oftentimes, you know, even public information um, and make that accessible to other people. This is, of course, perhaps most famously the law that um, that got, well, he, he says the law that killed Aaron Swartz, right? This was the law that was used to arrest and charge him with all sorts of felony crimes um, for, you know, uh, Hacking and uh, and criminal behavior, when really Aaron was just <laughs> was just downloading PDFs of journal articles. Yeah, I mean it's. Um, I feel like we when I come out of the woods and and I want to find information, like I need specific types of information on trails, on destinations. I can't find it most of the time because the first five pages of Google. Um, are all just things that have been crafted for a specific SEO audience to to create certain page views and 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 respond to this ad-driven culture that 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 the online world has become. And I can't find what I fucking need to to get on the next trail, to find the trailhead, um, to do what I need to do. Sometimes it's there, but it's buried in a Forest Service or BLM site that doesn't play the SEO game. And um, and so, you know, this if 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 on one hand you have people prescribing and saying this is what you should be reading because it gives us the best page views and, and the best ads, and then the left the other hand is is actually suing you and throwing people in jail. What are we doing here? What kind of world are we creating? Right. I mean, and I think that this is what's. Um, I mean, and you you've you've used this. Uh, story before with some of the work you've done for universities in terms of, you know, again, using, um, uh, uh, scraping websites to find information that's publicly available online, but perhaps not easily accessible online, um, and universities thinking that you've somehow hacked them. Um, so, you know, this law um, is what, I mean, it was, wasn't it, it came into being like after war games, like it's from the 80s. It's so incredibly outdated. Um, it does not represent the ways in which we, the internet have, and the web have come to sort of be used. And it's really used, I mean, I think in, in certain cases as a way to sort of, um, go after people politically rather than actually stop fraud or crime online. Well, that's the thing is, is going after people. You don't hear about corporations like banks. Entire banking industry runs off of scrape, screen scraping. This is the norm. This is how it works. They scrape and get at the data um, from your accounts and to do the things they need to do. They don't have APIs. I mean, some of them are starting to go there. But um, and you don't hear about them getting in trouble. Um, this is this is targeting people to shut people up who are doing certain things, 
and um, researchers researchers and activists. And, And, um, you know, but if you're a startup and you're doing it to, um, you know, get up and going and you're, you know, you have investment, then then for some reason um, some of this is is sanctioned. It's just it doesn't seem like it's being sanctioned in the right way um, across the board. Yeah. Uh, what other? Let's see. What other articles have we have we got here? Um, what do you want to talk about next? Um, let's talk. Let's idle words. Let's move into because that's the next tab I have open, and it's some somewhat related. <laughs> that's true. Um, I should have figured out how to pronounce his name. So this is the latest keynote delivered by Machev, and now I don't even have it in front of me. Um, the the founder of Pinboard, and I think he. I've never seen him speak live, but. Like me, he puts the transcripts of his talk online afterwards, which, of course, I'm a fan of. Um, but I'm particularly a fan of, of his work. Um, I, uh, and his latest talk is The Moral Economy of Tech. And I think that, I mean, I think that he often really underscores some of the ways in which, you know, the, the narratives that Silicon Valley and the tech sector tell about about money, about innovation, about ethics are, I mean, I mean, I think he makes it pretty clear, are actually sort of pathological, are just, are incredibly destructive in terms of our data, in terms of surveillance, in terms of inequality. Um, He's, I think he's one of the most incredibly insightful uh, people in tech. Well, and I, I mean, when I read his work, I mean, especially this one, I, I mean, I'm like, that's me. I, this is, I'm recovering and constantly waking up from this, this, this dream that is, you know, my um, early tech career going into 2000, going into 2005 and really drinking the, the early tech crunch Kool-Aid and really, you know, believing, oh, I can change the world and make a difference. And, and I mean, well, and then constantly having entire swaths of the world, you know, opened up, my eyes opened up to as far as, oh, yeah, I actually don't know what um, huge uh, swaths of, of, of our society actually need when it comes to technology or actually need when it, when it comes to living their everyday lives. And it's just, set, you know, constantly waking up to this to the point where I'm like, man, what the fuck am I doing with technology? Like, who the hell am I to even think about that I should be pushing this on you? Um, and and I just feel like there's 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 just a whole community right now that, and back to that that real-time barrage that's, that's you know, they have these habits and, they, and they're reinforcing this culture and they're, they're being give, given money by rich white, white guys to just keep going, build fast, build hard, don't stop, you know, uh, you know, break things and keep moving forward. Don't actually stop and, and learn history. Don't actually stop and think about what you're doing. Don't actually stop and learn about what other actual communities are needing when it comes to payments or education or healthcare or any of this. Just keep going and keep breaking stuff because you're making us lots of fucking money. And um I and and all of this feeds into this this as he says, this this apparatus of of surveillance capitalism that really um I I really think if people slowed down and stopped for a bit, there's a whole section of us that would go, what the fuck have we been peddling? Right. I'm going to read a little, I'm going to read the 
couple of paragraphs here because they tie into some of the other things that I want us to talk about. Um, but he says um, in the conclusion of his, of his keynote, more broadly, we have to stop treating computer technology as something unprecedented in human history. Not every year is year zero. This is not the first time an enthusiastic group of nerds has decided to treat the rest of the world as a science experiment. Earlier attempts to create a rationalist utopia failed for interesting reasons. And since we bought those lessons at a great price, it would be a shame not to learn from them. There is also prior art in attempts at achieving immortality, limitless wealth, and, the gal and galactic domination. We even know what happens if you try to keep dossiers on an entire country. If we're going to try all these things again, let's at least learn from our past so we can fail in interesting new ways instead of failing in the same exasperating ways as last time. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I... <laughs> I feel like that's my work. Like, that's the work I try to do w with a lot of the historical pieces that I write um, about education technology. And it kills me because I, I hear... In fact, there was an, a really disgusting op-ed in TechCrunch, written by a venture capitalist who focuses on education. And he sort of started out by saying, you know, of course people have been doing this for a, a while now, but this time it's different. But there's, in the this time it's different piece is sort of one of these most, the sort of most obviously sort of banal things you could say. I mean, of course it's different. Every moment in history is different from the past. We aren't cut we aren't caught in a sort of wheel we aren't caught in groundhog day, right? We aren't li reliving the same thing from 5 years or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years ago. Um, of course, there are differences, but if we don't look at the past and if we pretend like the past is irrelevant, and if we pretend, as you know, as it says here, that everything is brand new and innovative, and that there is no, no histories and no historical analogies, and no other sort of root causes to the things that we're doing, then we're really just going to, I think, you know, not just sort of fuck things up as we've done so in the past, but I think perhaps even do things much more detrimentally when it comes to things like equality and democracy and, um, you know, the environmental, um, environmental sustainability and the like. Well, that's what makes startups in, um, such a, an amazing vehicle for this is because three to five years, they get a walk away either because they're a failure or because they get an exit they don't have to deal with the repercussions of any of this. Their privilege protects them from this, or our privilege protects us from this. That you know, we don't have to actually make this work for real. All we got to do is inflate the numbers, build the image, get it out there. We don't actually have to live in the communities where we disrupted education, disrupted healthcare. We're not the people with you know that are underserved or underbanked or or. Um, you know, aren't aren't as capable uh, as uh, or as as mobile or you know able to do what what this 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 new breed of capitalists are are, are doing. So um, I think it's just a really dangerous, reckless. It's you know it's like you know giving a, a you know a vehicle to to the young kids and just letting them just drive wherever you know watch Harry Potter as they're bombing down the freeway, not looking at the road.
Oops. <laughs> that doesn't end well, does it? No, that doesn't. Um, but I think this, this I'm going into uh, hopping up through my tabs here as I have opened this. I think dovetails nicely with a piece you wrote this week on marketing virtual reality and it to education is, you know, it's, hey, this is new. This is exciting. This is like the next thing. It's going to change things. It's going to make everything you're doing that, you know, that I say is bad, irrelevant now. And there's going to be this brand new utopian and utopia. And what what is so fascinating when you step outside of this this world, I think where where you and I live is it's the same old thing that's it's it they're selling a whole you know this selling this fantasy that doesn't exist but promising as something new and they and they believe it. I feel like a lot of these people actually believe what they're selling yeah the i you know the virtual reality piece, as you know, I've been working on for quite some time. I really love doing sort of the archaeology of a lot of these technologies um, in tech and in edtech in particular. Like I'm fascinated by, I mean, and I'm particularly fascinated because tech pretends like it has no history. And to me, that's, that's so interesting because of course it does. I mean, of course it has a history. And when you think about, you know, you think about something like virtual reality, which has been, which is currently being, you know, said as though it's going to, you know, change how we think about empathy, it's going to change how people learn, it's going to change how we experience things, and I think, but yet none of these folks sort of seem to have understood or seem to know much about the history of watching of images, right, of photographs, of, how go back farther, of, of paintings, of photographs, of um, the stereoscope, of video, of film first, I suppose, um, the way in which all of these, you know, all of these, perf- all of these sort of visual um, storytelling devices have this really long history that builds on theater, for example, or photography builds on painting. So we don't invent new languages out of sort of whole cloth. We do sort of build on top of the languages, the visual languages that we already know. I mean, actually, this is something you and I have been talking about a lot with the drone photography that you've been doing, right? So you can't, you, you, you know, we, the way in which we sort of understand the world through film has, you know, is, is quite recent, but we have developed a visual language so that edits make sense. So that when there's an edit in the film and we cut from, you know, a person in one location doing one thing to a person in a completely different location, our brains understand what's happened in in the story. Um, and so this, this sort of talking about virtual reality as though it's utterly new, um, sort of, it always boggles my mind. But as I started to do this sort of research, what really interested me, as you said, was how the arguments for putting virtual reality, and and I have to imagine sort of that's got air quotes around it, Um, but using these sort of virtual field trips that Google's really been pushing is precisely the same argument that people used a century ago for why schools should adopt film, why schools should adopt educational film. And this is the idea that, you know, students can't go 
to these places around the world. They can't see exotic lands and exotic people. And trust me, it's always about exoticizing the other. There is certainly an imperialist impulse, an imperialist visual impulse to a lot of this looking that happens with these technologies. And that's precisely what Google says it's doing now. And so if, if we don't think, I mean, do we think that having our students watch filming class is the same as a field trip? No, we don't. We don't. We don't. We know that field trips, field trips have real meaningful, actual educational benefits that are, that are really about going places, going to the physical places, seeing things, experiencing things, hearing things, the feel of a, of a place that does not, that is not the same, that is not the same at all as watching a movie. So why strapping the, the friggin' Android to your forehead, why is that somehow better than a, than a, than a film? I don't know. Because you'll buy my apps, you'll buy my movie, you'll buy my video. I mean, this, all of this not remembering history or not, or wanting to even know it or being aware that it exists creates for two sides of a, of, of a money-making coin that you have all this whole wave of, of entrepreneurs who will go out there selling and pushing this and actually believe and they'll believe that this is the next thing and then you have on the flip side you have a wheeling um, crew of consumers who will buy into it yes this is the latest thing this is the new thing and we will buy it for our schools we'll buy it for our kids we'll bring it home and even if it's not um, we just don't have the critical faculties to to assess that and then I I would dovetail that into the next tab, which is Clinton's tech policy. Wait, before we move on, I just want to say one more thing about the, the virtual reality pieces. I, I was looking for sort of marketing pieces last night as I was finishing up the story because um, I wanted to include some contemporary advertising. And I tweeted out um, a screenshot of someone who claimed that this was this is a company working with Oculus Rift, making educational content for college-level classes. Um, and I tweeted out a screenshot from something on their website, which is actually completely 100% bullshit pseudoscience, not realistic. And it's a, but there's those nuggets of things that appear in PR and marketing and then get rewritten by tech journalists because tech journalists tend to sort of not have asked any questions and if it appeared in a press release it must be true and this is this is a statement that I've you might have heard this that people remember 10% of what they read and 30% of what they hear and 90% of what they do which is not true it's a completely made up thing but what was funny was that Mike Caulfield went through and he he found the word he looked at the words of this copy in this case study and you could see that the sentence is, has been plagiarized by these PR people across ed tech. And so, like, they're just copying and pasting, they're copying and pasting copy that it contains scientific nonsense. And no one along the way is stopping and saying, A, this is not true, right? You've actually taken a made-up claim and you're passing it off as science but then also you've plagiarized like you've you're plagiarizing one another so it's sort of like this so just terrible 
you know, really terrible bad behavior among marketers. But again, it appears, you know, these it appears word for word in ed tech publications that haven't done any sort of other verification of of the kinds of things that they're that they're hustling. And this past week was ISTE, the big ed tech K through twelve ed tech conference in the U.S. Thank God I wasn't there, but apparently, you know, the, this bullshit was just laid on thick in the exhibit hall. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Don't we? We should. I have a startup idea: a play, a AI plagiarism for startup marketing material. Jesus Christ. I mean, they, they, they copy and paste one another's terms of service and privacy policies. It doesn't surprise me that people copy and paste one another's marketing claims. And it doesn't surprise me because many of these folks do not have a background in education history, education research, and they have not been, you know, if they've been teachers, they've been, you know, teachers at a, one of these, you know, charter schools that hire TFA. They don't, they tend to not have an in-depth um, an in-depth sort of understanding of, of, of education. They don't understand how people learn, and they sadly have no curiosity um, and interest in, in learning more uh, about the, the moose diarrhea, right? Moose diarrhea that they're peddling. It's, it's crazy that these are the pe- same people, you know, who say we need, we need blockchain because people aren't trustworthy in education because people are cheating and stuff. But I guess these people know firsthand that's, that's, <laughs> I think it is the, it's, it is the sort of the, you know, it is the thing that the, that the people that are most concerned about cheating are cheaters. The people that are most concerned about lying are liars. That's um, how the world works. Speaking of untrustworthy people, that's the segue, right? <laughs> you, you did it better than I did. Good job. Um, presidential uh, Democratic presumptive nominee Hillary Clinton released her um, innovation agenda this week. And what a, this will be a great thing to wrap things up and end with. Um, uh, which was, I, I can hardly just say any more of it than this was actually just a huge gift to the elites of Silicon Valley. Well, I mean, I think this is what people, um, you know, who love to hate Hillary, one of the things they, they talk about her, she's just establishment. She's just, you know, making her network and her people richer and, and more successful. I mean, I think you know, the, the liberal, I mean, I guess there's a Venn diagram, part of the libertarian, but the liberal side of Silicon Valley, I mean, she's just making it so that they can keep doing what they're doing. I mean, doubling down on, on that, this, you know, I mean, I, I get it. Small businesses are good. People, you know, incubators and teaching people how to do things are good. Getting people to do small businesses. I'm all for that over the, the big corporate enterprise job and bringing in you know, the big corporate uh, presence into a city, giving them tax breaks, and then they leave, you know, small businesses are good. But to be going all in on this this new version of small business that is startup, that is Silicon Valley, that is venture capital driven and has this, this really blind, um, eager, young um, group of people who are ignorant, white, white, white men that are ignorant of history, um, you know, and and I can say this from, uh, you know, being part of the one of the waves of of tech people going into D.C. and then watching 
um, subsequent waves of Presidential Innovation Fellows, U.S. Digital Services, and I don't want to badmouth any of these people that, that you know, they're all, uh, most of them are very well-meaning, um, but they're just um, infiltrating this way of thinking into government, and I, I, I agree that we need to change how we think in government, but um, to replace it with with this 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 startup culture um, entirely across the board and doubling giving um, student loan forgiveness for startup people I mean that's that's just wacky give everybody student loan forgiveness you know don't just give it to to the white men that are that are leading these startups so I mean she's basically doubling down on that Silicon Valley um, you know startup culture is the way to go and this is how we um, you know want to want to keep running government in in this model yeah I mean I totally agree with you like I would love to see initiatives you know I mean I think of there are several there are several different um, student loan repayment options that people have besides just sort of slogging away at one's debt for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years. I mean, there's income-based repayment, right, so that you can sign up for if you aren't making a lot of money that you're, you, and you can get your loan payments reduced. There's a, a public service um, option that if you've worked in a field, like if you're a teacher or if you've worked for a nonprofit or if you work in healthcare, that um, you can also get your loans forgiven entirely um, after, I think, 10 years. Um, there are ways to defer your student loans um, by doing certain things. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure I believe that the student loan thing is stopping tech startups, right? The I think that if student loans are a problem, then we need to address them whole scale. And again, not just to not just to reward what who are already a very privileged population, right? If you if you're gonna if you're gonna give people deferment for starting a business, then I want you to defer the student loans of people who are sh setting up um, different kinds of businesses, um, not just ones that privilege again a certain a certain demographic that is probably going to be just fine when it comes to repaying their student loans. I mean, if you look at the people who are truly overburdened by student loans, it is not Stanford graduates. It's it's women of color, primarily who went to for-profit universities. Why, let's look at the kinds of businesses that women of color are starting in their own communities, and let's forgive their loans. Yeah, I mean, with the track record of, of Silicon Valley, you know, white men-led Silicon Valley startups as far as creating jobs, living wage jobs for people that stick around, um, that's some scary stuff. I mean, it seems like we would be better off you know, spending that money, um, you know, helping other people who have student loans and are actually doing, you know, small businesses, things within, you know, the inner city, within small towns. Uh, well, this is the irony, though, of the way it's phrased is that you can get a special, you can get, um, I can't remember if it's special grant money or, again, the student loan um, uh, deferral. If you start a business, a tech business in a in a disadvantaged um, city, 
Well, shit. Like, think of all of the tech entrepreneurs that live in Oakland now. Yeah. Right? So, like, and they're not doing anything. In fact, they're they're making Oakland, they're making Oakland worse (laughs) for for its residents. And so... Um, I think that this is just, an, this is obviously such a giveaway to Silicon Valley. And, you know, although, you know, Barack Obama has been quite close, his administration has been quite close with the tech, um, with the tech sector, um, Hillary Clinton less so. And so I do think that this is just a gesture, um, a gesture again, sort of rein in those who might consider um, you know, it might consider a libertarian uh, vote, rein in those who might feel as though they were somehow um, upset by, you know, Bernie not um, getting the nomination. And, oh yeah, I guess um, stand in opposition to those um, who are supporting Donald Trump, like Peter Thiel. Well, I think just pandering to the people who are going to be the alpha uh, tweeters, social media mavens, and all that that are going to like, this is good. They're donors. No, they're donors. I mean, that's the, 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 they're donors. I mean, this is about, this is about the don like Marissa Mayer, you know, had one of those, you know, 30,000 a ticket, you know, di- uh, you know, $30,000 per person like, fundraisers for Barack Obama. I mean, she needs, Hillary Clinton needs the donor class to be on on board, and and Silicon Valley are the one percent. I mean, members of certain parts of Silicon Valley are the one percent, and she needs their money. So. Well, and I think it's hanging the sign over that 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 beautiful revolving door that that you and I have seen in action for that next wave of of industry folks to spend some time in D.C. before they go back where to their industries, and uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. All right. Well, um, next week we will, I'll be here when we chat again and you'll be mystery location. Yeah. I don't know where, where I'll be. I don't have that, uh, planned out that far, but we'll see some, somewhere (laughs) interesting. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening folks.